0: Dear Lord Jesus, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for who you are and what you've done for us. Lord, I thank you that you are a God that gives gifts. You give free gifts of grace. Lord, we thank you that you give us spiritual fruit to cultivate in our lives. And Lord, I ask that you will help us grasp that advantage in our life and grow that character through the work of your Holy Spirit in our lives so we go on to maturity. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, looks like I think everybody has been to this class before. So I'm not going to go over some of the introduction to the How to Grow class. But I'm going to start off with a quick reminder, a re- quick recap of what some of the ground that Dan covered last week, just to prime the pump, as it were. Um, so we're this morning, completing the work that Dan started regarding the fruits of the Spirit, in Galatians 5, to 23 which just as a reminder says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So first we're going to look at some of the things we learned that are foundational to our understanding of the fruit of the Spirit. The question of spiritual fruit is one of Christ-likeness. We should ask ourselves, how am I cultivating the spiritual fruit that is given to me by the Holy Spirit to become more like Jesus, who was a perfect representation of a fruitful man? If you remember, Dan helpfully described the activity of cultivating spiritual fruit as a dependent responsibility. Fruit is given to all of us Christians at the outset of our Christian walk. That's a gift, the free gift, right? But it's our responsibility to actively cultivate it in conjunction with the Lord's work in our life. Philippians 2, 12, and 13 speaks of this in a very helpful way. It says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So we see that synergy there between our working God's work through the power of the Spirit. Of course, we always remember that cultivating spiritual fruit is not a way to earn salvation because this just becomes moralism. We cannot earn God's favor through self-reliant activity. This often will lead to dry legalism and ultimately defeated burnout. So we try and accomplish things that should be empowered by the Holy Spirit. On the other hand, We must guard against apathy as well. We shouldn't have the let go and let God attitude because this denies personal responsibility. No, we are encouraged to cultivate spiritual fruit with an attitude of personal devotion to God. Dan said that this devotion includes a love of God, a healthy fear of God, and a desire for God. We should be like the psalmist in Psalm 42 says, As the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you. Or we should be like Paul, who made imitating Christ-like perfection an ultimate aim. Please look at Philippians 3, 12-14. It says, not that I've already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Also, with spiritual fruit, there's an active putting off of the sin nature and a putting on of the fruit of the Spirit And we partake in this as part of the redemption of our character. Ephesians 4, 22-24 says, Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So this passage contains commands that require Active obedience and patient cultivation of those fruits. So with that foundational context, Dan covered um, for us an introduction to some of the fruits. He covered love, joy, peace, and patience. This week we're going to look at kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Time permitting. I'll try and get there. We're going to do this a certain way. First of all, we're going to look at the definitions of the word. Um, we're going to make sure that our definitions in our what we've what we've sort of come up with in our own head, what we've heard from the world, you know, some of the things we've been taught, and let's make sure that our definitions are correctly correctly aligned with Scripture. You know, the world often hijacks words that are actually defined by God. And sometimes we use them to mean something completely different. So it's best that we look at what the Bible says about them. And then to help with that, we look how God exhibits those character traits, how Jesus displays them. Occasionally we're going to look at how the apostles were also an example in them. And then we're going to compare and contrast that to how the world may have incorrectly defined them. And hopefully at the end of that, we'll have a good definition of a fruit and understand how to apply that in our life. First one we're going to look at, first fruit of the Spirit we're going to look at today is kindness. So let's look at what it is. The Greek word is crestotes, and in your Greek uh, dictionary, it might have some synonyms such as mild, pleasant, benevolent, And in fact, I think benevolent is perhaps the best synonym to help us understand the biblical word. And they are helpful words, helpful definitions to help us understand kindness. But if we add um, the illustrations of how God exhibits these traits, we might understand how he does that perfectly and add some color to that picture. God's kindness is described as that which should lead us to repentance, but why? Look at me with uh, look with me at Romans two four. It says, "Do not do you presume on the richness of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance." We see here that God's kindness is in not judging us immediately. He could come against us in anger and wrath and judgment because of our sin. But instead, he made a way out from under that judgment and instead is merciful and patient. I think we'll find this is further described for us in Titus 3, verses 4 and 5. It says, When the goodness and loving kindness of, our, of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Spirit. So, God's kindness is also in saving us through the sacrifice of Jesus and the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. We should be and are forever grateful that God is kind in this way. So, that should inspire our kindness to others. In fact, this is how we find that motivation to replicate the character trait within ourselves. Our kindness should be patient. We should look at ourselves and be humble. Our kindness should be humble. It should be unhypocritical. That should be the driver of our benevolence toward one another. Because we've been forgiven, we can forgive others. It is the extension of benevolence to people who may or may not be kind or loving or even considerate to us in return. So from this example, we can confidently say that being kind biblically means to show selflessness. Biblical kindness has the aim of looking out out for and seeking to do good to others, not just ourselves. So to cultivate the fruit of kindness, study your own sin. Meditate on the kindness God has shown you in Christ. Let this destroy your prideful self-centeredness. Pray and ask God to turn your heart towards, outwards towards others in true Christ-like kindness. Let's turn to Scripture to see the most clear and practical application. In Ephesians four thirty-one, thirty-two, 32 it says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Here we find that kindness is the opposite of bitterness and anger. Instead, it's remembering God's kindness to us and treating others in kind, without coming against them in your heart. Look at Looking at one another and seeing the intrinsic value that God has placed in each one of us is another motivation for kindness. We're all created in the image of God and have that image bearer status. So we're all of equal value before the Lord. 1 Corinthians 12, 21-25 says it well. It says, I cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary... For one another. So this recognizing of another's value in Christ. And seeking to care for each other in their individuality and distinctiveness. That should be a motivation for our kindness. Knowing that each one has value for our body. Hopefully that gives you a good picture of biblical kindness. Let's also look at what kindness is not. evolutionary ethicists have tried to understand why humans are kind at all, considering that we are just organisms evolved from the primordial soup. To explain why those being driven by the cutthroat instinct of the survival of the fittest, and why they are kind at all, these folks, they came up with the idea of reciprocal altruism. This is the idea that all kind acts are done in the hope that a potential predator will not turn around and eat you for lunch. That somehow your kindness will result in others being more protective toward your offspring to preserve the perpetuation of your kind. This is almost what I would call biological karma. Speaking of karma, biblical kindness is not like that either. It is not being nice and helpful toward other people for the purpose of gaining your own ends or getting back something nice in return? Have you ever treated other people with kindness in order to manipulate them toward our own desires? Have we ever complimented someone with the prideful hope of getting a compliment in return? Have we ever given someone a gift in the hope that they would, in response, have a better opinion of you? All of these questions kind of Aim towards whether our kindness is well-motivated and biblical or not. I would turn to Acts 20, 34-35 to help keep us in check with this sinful instinct. It says, You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me in all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak, remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So in conclusion, we are not kind to get, but because God. Is there any questions or comments about kindness this morning? Before we move on to goodness. Anyone have any thoughts about yeah. So you're mainly distinguishing the sort of pretend kindness from real kindness is one is uh on yourself versus the other terminates Yeah, exactly right. So for the for the recording there, Jason's comment is that a good distinguishing factor between biblical kindness and unbiblical unbiblical kindness Terminates the sort of the result of kindness on yourself, whereas biblical kindness terminates on the other person. So, good comment. Thank you. Okay, goodness, goodness. Doesn't there seem to be a contradiction in Scripture about our ability to be good? Can we be good? If you read Romans 3:10 to 12 it says as it is written none is righteous no not one no one understands no one seeks God all have turned aside together they have become worthless no one does good not even one Hmm What about Mark 10:17 to 18 it says and as he was setting out on his journey a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him good teacher What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Hmm. So this is true. Only God is intrinsically good. Man is intrinsically bad because of sin. So how can we exhibit the fruit of goodness, if that's the case? We'll go on. We'll we'll find that out. We'll puzzle that out. But first, we'll look at the Greek word here. It is agathosunai, which defines goodness as uprightness of heart and life. So how can we become upright in heart? And how does our life become good? The answer, of course, is it's through imputed righteousness. We are good because of Christ. His sinless perfection becomes ours when his atonement is applied to us. In this transaction, we become intrinsically, permanently, and positionally good. God now sees us like his son. Once this work is complete, we begin to work on another aspect of goodness, which is increasing integrity. Doing good because we love Christ and one another. So what is authentic Christian goodness? It is the pursuit of moral beauty in our desires and actions. This goodness is radical as described in Luke 6.35. It says, But love your enemies and do good and lend. Expect nothing in return and your reward will be great and you'll be the sons of the Most High. It is acting on the goodness given to us as fruit doing good to all, to both friends and enemies. Another aspect of goodness is being faultless, faultless, which includes the notion of integrity. Let's look at Daniel for our example. He was faultless. He represented that faultless aspect of goodness. His enemies sought hard, to try and find something, anything that they could use to drag Daniel down. Read Daniel 6.4, it says, Then the high officials and the satraps... How do I become a satrap? Anyone? Can I? Is that still around today? No. Um, <clears throat> but they sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. That's because Daniel's interest was in pleasing God, not man. In this sense, he was faultless. We should pray that we would all lead such good lives, that the enemies of God would find no hypocrisy in us. We should pray that they would, in spite of themselves, be forced to admit that Christ is indeed making us good By his spirit. Goodness is also filling ourselves. With the knowledge of the word. So that we can instruct each other. Toward good ends. Romans 15.14 says. I myself am satisfied. With you my brothers. That you yourselves. Are full of goodness. Filled with all knowledge. And able to instruct one another. If that is what goodness is. Let's look now at what goodness is not. Biblical goodness is not merely the appearance of being good, all the while harboring evil desires underneath. Biblical goodness is not hypocritical. God has made it abundantly clear that he hates fakery, putting on airs and graces, effrontery, all of that. He does not like fake Goodness. Matthew 6, 1 to 3 is very clear on this. It says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. In the New Testament, we have another example of false goodness in the tale of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5, 3-5. You'll probably remember the story that this husband and wife sold some property and gave a portion of the proceeds to the church. But this was actually a hypocritical desire to appear good. They claimed to have given all of their proceeds to to the, to the early church. But Peter informed them that they had lied to God, and they literally both dropped dead. God's open hatred of false goodness ought to drive us to ask how we play the hypocrite in our own lives. It's a serious business by that example. Do we choose what church ministries to be part of? based on how public they are? People are going to look at me and think I'm a really cool, smart guy or girl. When we evangelize or serve, do our hearts veer towards considering how such activities will build our spiritual resume? Oh yes, I've, I've done all these wonderfully good things. You should consider me. Do we think we're more good if our devotional times are longer than those of our friends? Or at least use that as a way to talk well of ourselves? Just have some questions for application there. Ultimately, ultimately, the motivation for our goodness should be to let our light shine before men so that they see our good works and give glory to God, not glory to ourselves. Very clear in Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So ultimately, our goodness gives glory to God. Any questions or comments about the fruit of goodness? Let's move on to faithfulness. Greek word here is pistis, which means the character of one who can be re- relied upon. Character of one who can be relied upon. God's faithfulness is a clear example of being perfectly faithful. Faithful. Deuteronomy 7:9 says know therefore that the Lord your God is God the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations of course thousand generations is a euphemism for forever uh, so forever he keeps those covenants we find that our God is faithful in that he makes And keeps his covenants and remains in steadfast love. In Psalm 33, 4, we see that that all he has done is doing and will do as a result of his faithfulness in these things. For the word of the Lord is upright and all his work is done in faithfulness. All of it, all of it is done in faithfulness. And thankfully, his faithfulness is not fickle like ours. It is perfect. It is unchanging faithfulness. 2 Timothy 2.13 says, If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So because of this, because of this example, we are too also called to faithfulness. Because God, in whose image we are made, is himself perfectly faithful. He always keeps his promises, always fulfills what he says he will do. This is true faithfulness, and we are called to exhibit the same trait. We are to keep our promises. We are to be faithful in what we do. Always fulfill our promises like that. What about Jesus Jesus also is a wonderful model of faithfulness. There's a passage in Hebrews 3, 1 to 6. We see how Jesus is faithful to his Father as builder and ruler over God's house. It says, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in the heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and the high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of the house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant, to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast to our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So there we see that Jesus was faithful from beginning to end. More faithful than Moses. And uh, fulfilled the word, the, the command of his father in building the house. Another part of faithfulness uh, that Jesus exhibited is to being obedient to go to the cross despite great cost to himself. Luke twenty two, forty one and forty two it says, And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. Jesus' example is that he believed that every word of his heavenly father was true and to be obeyed. No matter the cost to himself, he followed through in faithfulness. We have that same radical faithfulness that should be cultivated as a, as a fruit in our life. So our application of this should be um, following Jesus' footsteps in faithfulness, Hebrews 10.23 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. We can be faithful because God is faithful to us. Plus, 1 Corinthians 4.1 to do is clear that one of God's commands to us is that we remain faithful. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. It is up to us to faithfully steward the gospel. Of course, we are only able to be faithful because we have been given the strength and been appointed to serve faithfully. So if we look at uh, 1 Timothy 1:12 1, to 14, we see that faithfulness also has an element of perseverance. Um, looking forward to Christ's imminent, Christ's imminent return is what should give us a motivation to remain faithful, faithful to the end. Uh, Matthew 24:44 to 47 illustrates it well. It says, "Who then is the faithful and wise servant?" whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find doing when he comes. So doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. If we are expectantly awaiting the return of Jesus, we will want to be found faithfully serving him when he returns, which could be at any moment. So be faithful to the end. Expect the imminent return. And be like Jesus who in self-sacrifice remains faithful no matter the cost to yourself. Let's look at a couple of examples of what faithfulness is not. It is not breaking loyalty to the Lord. Unfaithfulness is best defined as disobedience toward God. Often in Scripture, we see this connection between disobedience and unfaithfulness. We can see an example of this in 1 Chronicles 10, 13. It says, So Saul died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord in that he did not keep the command of the Lord. He also consulted a medium seeking guidance. It's a big deal of... Uh, Looking for mystical help beyond the help that God himself gives us. Sometimes we can show a streak of rebellion and display open disobedience. And obviously this is a lack of faithfulness. But maybe more common amongst us is half-heartedness in our obedience. We may obey, but only in part or even begrudgingly. This is essentially being a bad steward of the fruit of the Spirit and having a lack of responsibility in cultivating the fruit and gift of the Spirit. Ultimately, this could end up with them being stripped away. Matthew 25 24 to 29 says, He also had, He also who had, received the one, oh, sorry, let me start that again. He also had received one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. From the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. So let us strive to remain faithful to God, as he is unchangingly faithful to us. All right, I'm going to stop there and ask any, anything in that lesson that requires maybe some more explanation or um, maybe was confusing or any comments that will help illustrate faithfulness to us. if you want to do some an additional study, I would recommend a, l- a look into the subject of covenantal faithfulness. How we as Christians are in a covenant. A covenant with God in the new covenant. A covenant with one another. We, we, have a, we have a church covenant with one another, don't we? Covenantal language is all about faithfulness. Faithfulness to one another and to God. So, a good topic to... To cover there. Let's move on to gentleness. The Greek word for gentleness is pretes, which means mildness of disposition, gentleness of spirit, or meekness. Isn't it amazing that we can look to the all powerful, just, wrathful, jealous God as our example of gentleness? This is what makes our God so unique. Compared to other gods, he is perfect and perfectly balanced in all of his attributes. He has the right to be judgmental, but he also chooses to be gentle. Isaiah 42, 2-3 and 40-11 has some beautiful language to describe this gentleness, which should give us great comfort says, he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. And then he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. From God's example, we can see that biblical gentleness assumes great strength. But this strength is never used harshly, violently, or aggressively. Instead, it is used to protect protect the weak and to serve the most helpless. Doesn't God treat us with such gentleness, gently restoring us every time we repent of sin and seek his forgiveness? This is why the ability to repent and ask forgiveness is such a great benefit, because He will be gentle to us in those moments. <clears throat> Jesus too reflects this attribute, and we praise God that we have a Savior who describes Himself as meek and lowly in heart. Matthew eleven twenty nine says, "Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me, for I am gentle." and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Even when he was being persecuted, when he could have come against his torturers in power and revenge and judgment, Jesus chose to be gentle. 1 Peter 2.23 says, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. This example gives us context and color to Jesus' command to us to turn the other cheek. We do not have to retaliate because we know that vengeance is God's and that he will repay. We don't have to take that step. We can remain gentle. Even how about as we minister to each other, that we're called to do as we one another each other in the church. We can look at the apostles' examples of gentleness, how they treated the saints. You read in 1 Thessalonians 2, 3-12 to about how, and particularly uh, verse 7, it says, "...we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children." this is how we treat one another as well we should approach ministry with great gentleness and care i don't know some of you may have followed sort of some of the trending christian news but we've had some stories about this how this example was not followed at the famous mars hill church back in the early 2000s we can see from that example the damage that angry Bullying ministry, how the damage, what it's done to the members of the flock and to the reputation of the church. Our gentleness should not be, we should not be like that. Our gentleness should be as the Bible describes. In Philippians 4, 5, it says, Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Or even more simply, Proverbs, thankfully so clear. 15.1, it says, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. So in conclusion of what gentleness is, we can see that biblical gentleness assumes great power, but this power is not used in self-defense or self-righteousness. Rather, gentleness defers judgment to God. We then choose to respond in a quiet, humble manner in fact, it's consistent with an understanding of how we are in Christ and of who God is. Isn't there plenty of scope to exercise gentleness in the culture wars of today? There's much temptation to vilify one another, to react very quickly in harshness. But that's not what we're called to do. We're called to be gentle, be patient, as God is patient, and gentle towards us, even our enemies. However, there can be a misconception about gentleness. So we'll have a look at what gentleness is not. First of all, it is not toothless. I'm not referring to the dragon in that one movie. Yeah. (laughs) You're all like, toothless. (laughs) No, I'm referring to something that is outlined in Matthew ten sixteen. It says, Behold, I'm sending you out as a sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Sometimes we think of gentleness as being all fluffy pillows and bunny rabbits. And oh, we, we're just nice and fuzzy and kind. But... Like some of the other fruits of the Spirit, we can possess a false gentleness. A gentleness that seeks to avoid conflict at all costs. But thoughtful, discerning, biblical engagement does not avoid discussion. It engages, but with a great deal of meekness and grace. So don't be toothless in your gentleness. It's also not wimpy. Yeah. No. Joshua 1.9 says, I, Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. and Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. In God's economy, gentleness is not synonymous with weakness or lack of courage and strength. Remember from God's example, gentleness and meekness have to do with the ideas of great power Being exercised, but with great restraint and great care. We have a lot of power to argue with, to belittle, and hurt people, but this is not what we're called to do. We are called to be gentle, even if the topic is vaccines or masks. It applies there, isn't that weird? Any questions about gentleness? Any definitions or comments that would be helpful? Okay. So we'll move on to our last fruit for today, self-control. What is self-control? The Greek is ekratia, is one who masters his desires and passions, especially his sensual appetites. Masters his desires and passions, especially his sensual appetites. There is a juxtaposition in Nahum one three that shows us God's example of self control perfectly. It says the Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. So, great in power, but slow to anger. He could clearly exercise his great power against man's sin very easily. And he will. But instead, he is slow to anger. Of course, God does not sin and is not tempted to sin. But there have been numerous times in the Bible where he has relented from his righteous anger through the intercession of righteous petition. Let's look at Jesus' example in self-control. He was tempted to sin, and yet he showed perfect self-control to remain sinless. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus was empowered by the Holy Spirit to resist sin and therefore became the example of how we should exercise self-control in this life. Not that we can be without sin this side of heaven, but we can grow increasingly in righteousness if we cultivate this spiritual fruit. Titus 2, 11-12 gives us the blueprint for how we can do this cultivation. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age But what if we're tempted to relinquish self-control? There's a famous verse in 1 Corinthians 10:13 that has an encouragement for that scenario. It says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. That's a concept that we, always encouraging to me in that moment of temptation, to have that verse memorized and then act upon it. But how about good old practical James? He may bring it home even clearer. Exercising self-control involves slowing down and not reacting sinfully in the moment. James 1.19 says, Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Take your time. We don't all have to hear your opinion right away. Think with compassion and speak with controlled graciousness. Paul also speaks of this kind of self-control in 1 Corinthians 9, drawing an analogy between the Christian life and training for an athletic event. Athletes train themselves as rigorously as they do for a reason. They want to win the prize. we have seen plenty of example of that these last couple of weeks. Great Britain was fourth, by the way, in the medal count. Well done, America, number one. Excellent. Why did I do it that way around? Anyway, 1 Corinthians 9, 25 and 27, it says, Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we, an imperishable one. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. As believers, the prize we are running toward is the final salvation of our souls, and the perfection of our joy at the return of Jesus Christ. If this truly is our highest goal, we will desire all other things less. And so will, by the power of the Holy Spirit, be able to control ourselves when tempted by any lesser things. So let's, uh, just for a clarification, finally, Look at what self-control is not. It is not aestheticism. What's aestheticism? Aestheticism is having regulations around certain things or denying yourself good things, pleasurable things created by God in the hope that this self-denial will help you avoid sin. The early church in Colossa battled against this is spoken directly to in Colossians 2. It says, If with Christ you have died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These indeed have an appearance of wisdom, in promoting self made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Aesthetics were an actual sect during these times, but today we do have modern aesthetics. They attach holiness or goodness to having restrictions around things such as diets, oh, sugar or drinking, or exercise, or a certain approach to medicine, or clothing and how you wear it, all of these temporal things. But these restrictions often actually feed into the sin of pride rather than help curb the sinful desire of the heart. 1 Timothy 4, 7-8 to says, Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths, Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also the life to come. The cultivation of the spiritual fruit of self-control is directed toward godliness because we love God, and because we want to serve him, it's not in a meager attempt to gain favor through our actions or look good to others. This is very uh, of low priority compared to serving the Lord in this life and life to come. I have any final questions about self-control? Have I made it clear, or I hope so, rather than confusing? Okay. So there we have it. As a brief guide and an introduction to the fruits of the Spirit, I urge you please go away and study more about these and fervently seek to cultivate and produce these fruits in your life as the Holy Spirit empowers you to. Cultivation of spiritual fruit is yet another spiritual discipline that grows us towards spiritual maturity. Well, last, next week is the last week in the series, and Greg is going to be teaching us on perseverance. So tune back in for the final episode of How to Grow. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Lord Jesus, again we do thank you that we have spiritual fruit given to us by the Holy Spirit. I pray you help us to be kind to one another. To be good. Lord, I do ask that We will be gentle to one another. We will be faithful to you and to others. And that we will have self-control over ourselves. Lord, I pray that you help us not to do this in our own strength, but to rely on the Holy Spirit and the free gifts that we are given. Lord, we thank you for you. And Lord, as we go out today, may we give you praise and glory and worship you in the way that you deserve. In Jesus' name, amen.